It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, an enticing collection of our reporting and analysis from the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, head of Economist Radio. And on our menu, Cubans find a canny way to dodge a digital blockade. Japan struggles to encourage its people to gamble and the booming industry of pet healthcare. But first, an insurgent in the White House was our cover line this week. With Donald Trump railing at the world he's inherited, America's allies are concerned. And there's every justification for that, as our cover leader explained. Washington is in the grip of a revolution. The bleak cadence of last month's inauguration was still in the air when Donald Trump lobbed the first Molotov cocktail of policies and executive orders against the Capitol's brilliant white porticos. And it was by no means the last. Quitting the Trans-Pacific Partnership, demanding a renegotiation of NAFTA and a wall with Mexico, overhauling immigration, warming to Brexit-bound Britain and Russia, cooling to the European Union, defending torture, attacking the press... Onward, he and his people charged, leaving the wreckage of received opinion smouldering in their wake. This hostile brand of politics emerges from a worldview that goes against decades of American foreign policy. Tactically, Mr Trump has little time for the multilateral bodies that govern everything from security to trade to the environment. He believes that lesser countries reap most of the rewards while America foots the bill. It can exploit its bargaining power to get a better deal by picking off countries one by one. Many Americans will be wary of the impact he'll have on home soil. They are right to worry, but they gain some protection from the institutions and the law. In the world at large, however, checks on Mr Trump are few. The consequences could be grave. And it may even lead to the gradual disintegration of some global institutions. The World Trade Organization would not be worthy of the name. The UN would fall into disuse. Countless treaties and conventions would be undermined. Although each one stands alone, together they form a system that binds America to its allies and projects its power across the world. So what to do in this emerging new era of politics? Read our prescriptions in this week's issue. With America's president choosing to withdraw from the world, we move to Cuba, where people are dealing with imposed isolation of a digital kind. An article in our America section explored how, on this still communist island, app stores pay rent. Cubans, like citizens of most countries in the digital age, are familiar with app stores. But theirs have actual doors, windows and counters. Intrigued, our reporter went into one to see what they were up to. Inside, a Super Mario effigy, kitted out with lab coat and stethoscope, keeps vigil while technicians transfer apps to customers' smartphones via USB cables attached to the shop's computers. Although the United States embargo on Cuba makes it hard to buy apps and other services online... 
Cubans are quickly picking up on app culture, says Jorge Luis Roca, a technician. As per the American embargo, many app-producing companies bar purchases from the island, but tech-savvy Cubans have figured out a way round the blockade. Mr Roque and his colleagues compensate for such faulty connections with human ones. With relatives abroad and access to their credit cards, they can download apps using virtual private networks, which can fool app publishers into thinking that they're communicating with, say, Miami. And this nifty digital trick is boosting human connections too. Among the most popular apps are Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp, cheaper ways of staying in touch with families living abroad than texting or calling. We have a very large population of app-literate grannies, says Mr Rocker. While Cuba's digital barriers are legal and diplomatic, over in Japan we see some cultural restraints undermining the government's wishes. As an article in our Asia section explained, while casinos have been legalised, they're being shunned by the masses. Most forms of gambling are banned in Japan, but many Japanese still like to have a flutter. Over 23 trillion yen, that's $203 billion, is waged annually on pachinko, a noisy variant of pinball. Nonetheless, Japan's government has struggled to win public approval for relaxing the rules. When the Diet legalised casinos in December after years of political wrangling, a poll by NHK, the country's public broadcaster, put support for the move at just 12%. Critics said it would exacerbate problem gambling and attract antisocial forces, a euphemism for Yakuza gangs. Though it's easy to see why Shinzo Abe, the Prime Minister, is putting his money on the industry. In an anemic economy, his enthusiasm is not hard to understand. The construction of these huge complexes could generate 5 trillion yen in economic activity, with another 2 trillion yen a year once they have opened, largely from increased tourism. While Japan's government tries to convince people to part with their money, over in India, there's an idea to help people acquire a little more of it. The concept of a universal basic income has been nudged into the global conversation in recent years, and India's government has mentioned it in a recent economic survey. Our South Asia business and finance correspondent, Stanley Pinyal, laid out one fairly fundamental problem with the idea. Uh, The difficulty with UBI in India is the same difficulty as with UBI anywhere. It's very expensive. Even if you give people um, what what is considered to be the poverty line in India, which is um, about $200 a year, you still end up with something like 12 to 13 percent of GDP that needs to be spent on this uh, universal basic income. And that, that is basically more than the entire federal budget. Elsewhere, we explored people throwing large amounts of money at problems, but animal ones. A box in our business section explained how the personification of pet health is creating a lucrative industry. At the 42,000-square-foot clinic in Hollywood that is owned by VCA, an animal hospital chain, you may find a Pomeranian on a course of stem cell therapy or a Shih Tzu having a hip replacement. There is even an underwater treadmill for cats. And as life and treatment improve for animals, vet bills are rising. That is the backdrop to the purchase in January of VCA by Mars, a firm best known for selling chocolate and sweets for $9.1 billion. From confectionery to cat care, the prospects in pet health are healthy too. Spending on animal clinic visits in America has increased from a total of $13.7 billion in 2012 to almost $6 
$16 billion last year. All this talk of cats on underwater treadmills might make you think we're living in an alternative reality. Well, in this week's science and technology podcast, Babbage, we explored the technology of augmented reality, which adds virtual information on top of the world we see. Our deputy editor, Tom Standage, put on his future-gazing goggles and gave us a glimpse into what life might look like in a few decades. So if you read science fiction, it is absolutely sort of accepted in a lot of sci-fi that we go from... AR glasses of the kind that that Tim's been uh, hearing about to smart contact lenses to basically implants in our heads that just give us a head-up display on the world and allow us to adjust how the world appears. So we might have, you know, infrared vision or hyperspectral vision or or whatever. Who knows uh, how these things might work? A last glance with my normal vision at this week's issue, turning to our letters section. And one reader wrote in to describe the unnerving parallels between a fictional account of the Roman Empire and America's new presidential administration. The early days of the Trump administration, article The 45th President, January 21st, bring to mind Robert Graves's I, Claudius. The ageing Roman emperor longs for the return of the Republic. To this end, he marries Agrippina, mother of Nero, hoping that Nero will be so cruel and despised that it will lead to a rejection of future emperors. His strategy... Let all of the poisons that lurk in the mud hatch out. The moral, I suppose, from Rome to the present day is be careful what you wish for. I'm Anne McElvoy. That was our tasting menu. And you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 